I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thanks for having me, Ken. From what you tell me, this idea of being an ongoing mentor to our listeners seems to be taking shape. If they would like to become involved, what needs to happen from here now? I notice a number of listeners have already downloaded the summary that I made available on the website last week, but I suspect there could still be some wanting to get involved who may not have done so as yet. So, Ken, let's allow them to do do that again this week. And all they need to do is to go to the website, that's propertybriefings.com, and click on this episode, number nine, and then they can download the summary of everything they'll be receiving when they become a member of the 2K Club. I think the feedback I've got is the, the summary is, is pretty all-inclusive. It covers a lot of areas that people have raised. It's a couple of extra ones that I've put in there as well. But from memory, the total value comes up to about $17,000 throughout the year. So it's quite good value. And I think when you see it, uh, hopefully it's the sort of thing that people were seeking. Okay, I'll leave you to progress that. Now, let's turn our attention to people who are looking to purchase a a commercial property for up to a million dollars. Which sector should they be focusing on and why? Last week, we did a quick tour of the various sectors of the commercial property market. And as you will recall, my current ranking would be offices number one, industrial number two, and retail probably a very distant third. But my clear preference would be for offices because over time, that sector in the market has proven to be the most dependable as far as performance is concerned. And for investors looking to buy in the under $1 million price bracket, I'd be suggesting you look at acquiring a suburban strata title office within an established corporate precinct. In other words, somewhere where other office users have chosen already to congregate. You see, there's no lasting value in owning the only office within a predominantly industrial or residential area. I mean, as you can appreciate, business people do like to network and therefore they want to be in an area that has other similar sized, similar use type of businesses so that they can be part of that overall community. So what seems to be driving the market for suburban strata titled offices? This is going to be a little tricky to answer. We've got to take a bit of a a detour, but you need to take a helicopter view of what has been taking place over the last 10 to 15 years. You see, whenever you go through a major structural change within society, Society or within the economy, you'll always find that opportunities emerge. Now, as far as the baby boomers are concerned, they won't be retiring. Well, not in the conventional sense anyway. Most of them will leave their long-term employment only to establish some type of small consultancy business. Now, in the past, many well-known firms have simply evolved as a result of one generation following the next into the family business. Now, invariably, sons and even daughters left school to join their parents' firm. And it was a handy way to ensure easy succession. And over the last over last century, that stood Australia in very good stead. However, the rules suddenly changed 
when Gen X and Gen Y started to enter the workforce because they were determined to do their own thing and also find their own way. And therefore, the family business tradition, as we knew it, sadly waned over the past 20 to 30 years. Now, historically, it was the children who would join the parents' established business. But as more baby boomers retire, it will be they who will be joining their children's fledgling businesses. You may have already noticed that it seems to be the Gen X and Gen Y children who are establishing many of the new small businesses. Gen X and Gen Y are more or less in the 25 to 40-year-old bracket. Many of them have been working in larger firms, have earned very big-ticket salaries, have got certain amount of experience in the field that they've become good at, and many of them have decided to go out by themselves. To a degree, that was of later times prompted by the global financial crisis. But mainly when you think about it, the reason that they've made the move is that fundamentally they dislike authority, they want to do their own thing, they have loads of confidence, and they're also risk takers. And probably their strongest point is that they're very IT savvy. However, many of them find themselves lacking in business experience. That's how to run a business. They probably also lack marketing skills. They may not have a lot of network contacts. They may have their own contacts, but in the business sense, they don't have a broad Rolodex of contacts. Plus, they lack the credibility that's needed when you go and visit a bank manager to borrow money. And this is where their baby boomer parents can help provide the assistance that they need. Now, doing so may not necessarily involve those parents in taking an equity position in their children's firms. In most cases, it's more likely to be an ongoing advisory role. The children may give the parents the title of chairman. In most cases, that's to impress key potential clients whenever they're pitching for business and also when they go visit the bank manager. But in return for the help that the parents are giving, the kids will allow them to have a corner office where they can actually, the parents run their own consultancy. So they get the best of both worlds. The the kids have got the support and encouragement and, and using the father as just a sounding board or mother, as the case may be, uh, sometimes just to second guess what they're doing. You need someone who's been there and, and experienced most of these things just to hear through the proposal or the direction that you're going in, but not necessarily interfere. And sometimes just talking it through with someone like that that you know and trust can help make the decision a whole lot easier. So as a result of this trend, the demand for office space, particularly in the suburban areas and the, and, and the, the business parks that have sprung up, is where you're going to see most of your growth in offices, more so than the CBDs around Australia. Now, this is mainly due to Gen X and Gen Y seeking out a more balanced lifestyle. You see, they're wanting to work closer to home, so they're closer to school, so the parents can drop the kids off, or if the kids get into trouble, they can whip across there in 10 or 15 minutes, and also so they're closer to their families as they grow up. So what you're going to see with the Gen Y and Gen X, and also the baby boomers wanting to 
continue working, you're going to see a growth in the suburban office market over the next 15 to 20 years. And that really is probably where I see the ideal spot and location and type of property for the under $1 million buyer to position themselves going forward. From what I read, there seems to be some concern that vacancy levels might be growing within the CBD office markets around Australia. Do you see that affecting the suburban office markets? Last week, we took a quick look at the suburban, sorry, the CBD office markets around Australia. And yes, vacancy rates have been creeping up for different reasons within the various capital cities. And if the vacancies were to remain at around the 10% mark for a while, there could be a drift of some suburban tenants into the city offices, basically to take advantage of attractive leasing incentives being offered. But as the CBD rentals start to rise again, these very same tenants will return to the cheaper rent profile offered by suburban offices. Now, the the smart ones will not be seduced by these illusory incentives because to move office is not a cheap exercise. I mean, the petitioning is one thing in a new office, but the time involved to plan anywhere from 6 to 12 months a move such as this, particularly if you're moving from the suburbs to the city, you have to redo all your letterhead and, and marketing material, you've got to redo your telephones, you've got to advise all your clients that you're moving and providing with all the new details. It's an absolute nightmare. So a lot of people are initially uh, seduced, as I said, to look at these incentives, but the reality is it's, it's not an inexpensive exercise. And the differential in rent is considerable. It could be up to 50% more per square metre in the city. And that's based, and all plus your outgoings are a lot more as well per square metre because the lifts don't run two or three floors as they do in the suburbs. They run 20, 30, 50 floors in the city. And as such, the cost to run bank of lifts is a lot more than to run one or two. So it's an exercise that needs to be thought through, but I don't see in the current climate that there will be a mass exodus from the suburban office market to the city. I see, as we discussed in the last question, it was it will be underpinned by the baby boomers and the Gen Y and Gen X, and their motivation is to be located in the suburbs, not in the city. There's no advantage. And with parking becoming expensive, public transport not making it that encouraging to to travel into the city, even from a workforce and just employment point of view, the suburbs close to where people live are becoming more and more attractive rather than making the trek into the city. So I see that as a continuing growth in that area and something that will not greatly be impacted by the vacancies creeping up in the city itself. One of the uh, our listeners did raise the question while we're talking about suburban office space, and that is after the podcast on investment objectives and uh, buying criteria, they came up with the question is that do these same objectives and criteria apply to all types of commercial property? The question really is, could you please expand on how these may apply to a strata title office, and how do we factor in flexible design, adding value, lending appearance, 
appeal, subdividing, assuming that someone is starting out in commercial property and are looking in the $350,000 price range. Okay. Now, it's true that some of the objectives and criteria may not directly apply to properties in the $350,000 to $400,000 price range. But things like flexible design and subdividing are included to ensure the property could be offered to the smallest possible tenant down the track whenever it becomes vacant and available for reletting. Now with a $350,000 property, as you can appreciate, it is already in its smallest possible size. So you would then rate this at a 9 or a 10. When it comes to adding value, that relates to being able to do something clever and inexpensive to improve the property's overall appeal. So if you had a a smaller property that was perhaps a little older, something like a quick refurb or rejigging of some of the existing partitioning could help rate that higher on that basis. I mean, it's not difficult to transform something older with a quick refurbishment with through paint, through changing door furniture, changing taps, all the little things that the eye catches. And it may be that the space was already petitioned, but over petitioned. And with the, as we discussed last week, with the trend more towards an open plan set up, just thinning out the petitioning, changing the colour, maybe putting some new blinds on the windows. You've got an older property, but you can transform it into something really appealing even quirky if that is the type of tenant you're after. So it doesn't matter that it's smaller. You can still do these value-add exercises. So as you can see, the ratings that we discussed need to be made using some common sense. And the app that I mentioned that I was developing should allow you to do that very quickly. Now, I won't do it on this podcast, but hopefully in the next week or the week after, I'll be able to give you an update on that. It seems to be progressing pretty well. I'm not a techo in the design. My role is more marketing as to what I want to see the end product. But I think you'll find it will make life a whole lot easier in making a quick assessment of properties on the run. One thing our listeners may be confused about is how the upcoming election will affect the commercial property market. Could you perhaps provide some insight on that? We may be running out of time here, so I'll try and keep this short. In essence, people have had many business decisions on hold since Julia Gillard announced the election date in February this year. It was such a long way off. And when people are uncertain or confused, they tend to do nothing. And therefore, the economy has trended sideways. Business investment, likewise. Overall confidence has moved sideways. It's like like we, everything is on hold and we reached a point and it's a plateau and we just moved sideways over the time period. And people just don't want to make major decisions or commitments that lock them into a situation without having certainty as to where we're going. And this has probably continued even before the announcement because with a minority government, you can't get a lot of things done. Sure, there was some legislative changes, but nonetheless, there was always the fear that the government could be thrown out. No 
one really knew what was truly happening and there couldn't be any long-term strategic planning done by either the politicians or the business community. And so it's been a difficult period. But the good news is that it's the election is going to be a week earlier than was stated and not the feared timing that at one stage Kevin Rudd was talking about of October, November. That would have been absolutely disastrous. Because what it now means is that immediately after the AFL ANL finals, there is a three-month period this side of Christmas for businesses to gear up, ready to tackle the new year with a greatly renewed confidence. So I see 2014 as a hive of renewed activity. And part of the reason for that is, as we know, and and retailers will tell you, consumer spending has been right down. The savings levels are the highest they've been for as long as I can remember. This is personal savings levels. Now, I think as I discussed in a couple of my blogs a while ago, People save on a week-by-week or a month-by-month basis and they accumulate it. Instead of spending it, they've saved it. They've either uh, put it in the bank or they have paid off their mortgage. Either way, they've improved their economic well-being rather than go on a spending spree, which they did during the early 2000s right up to the global financial crisis. So what you have is a situation with people who have a high savings level They're starting to feel wealthy again because of the clearance rates at auctions. Uh, The stock market is eking its way up again. But the house prices, not only selling, but increasing, people get that feeling of well-being again. So they've got a feeling of well-being with cash in the bank. Now, once the confidence switch clicks across, and as I said, I believe the trigger point will be the the elections. And as I said, then you've got to get through the football seasons and the finals. But you will see in the three months, October, November, December, people will be repositioning themselves ready to launch early in the new year. And I see the takeoff. And that's why I have been encouraging my clients to secure their position as far as commercial property is concerned when there is this uncertainty because it's not going to continue. The bank interest rates are low. I mean, with the publicity that's been going on as to the likelihood of a boom on the east coast of Australia as far as residential prices are concerned, I have very grave doubts that the Reserve Bank will be reducing interest rates again. I think the next move is up. We've already seen that as far as uh, the US is concerned. There's some, the bond rates are increasing in the US and that's really causing concern because the economy is, is improving, but it hasn't got a great momentum. So there are some real issues there. And so once that starts to happen, and that, that to a degree when interest rates rise is an indication that the economy is starting to take off again. And all I'm suggesting to you is that you have been involved in a period of do nothing and people get bored and they will only do nothing for a certain amount of time. So the trigger point will be the election. And as I said, you, you hopefully will see some activity this side of Christmas. But if nothing else, people will be positioning themselves ready to strive forward with, I feel, a fair amount of vigour early in the new year. So hopefully that gives you a quick overview of where I see things as a result of the election. You've covered a a fair amount in our session today, but it's all been very helpful. So how about we continue this next week? That sounds good. Uh, I'll look forward to that, Ken.